a son who is older than me who sort of rode motorbikes and I think ultimately committed suicide or something. You know, right. Being right. in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's interesting. That, that should be our, se- our segue yeah. in. Because you said something at one point about, um, I don't know, I've read lots of different interviews you've done and that kind oh, of thing. Oh, Jesus. But yeah. so, uh, but, so, <laughs> it's okay because I've forgotten it all since we met yeah, up good, about good. four weeks ago. In fact, I haven't even got the bloody book on me because it's in the office and the office is all locked down. But, um, but I mean, I, you said something about the growing up in that um, area and kind of some underlying feeling of violence in New Zealand. And I remember when, I mean, I've, my, I've only been here five years. I met my Kiwi wife, you know, nearly 20 years ago in London. So we spent most of our time there and then moved back here a while ago. But I remember like watching lots of movies like in our father's den. And there were so many films that we'd watch like Kiwi movies, but there's always seems to be suicide, child molestation. And well, I was like, what the fuck is, what, yeah, what's the no. story? Um, um, so what was this underlying, you know, what was this underlying violence maybe you felt? I mean, you said some guy that committed suicide and that's very New Zealand. So, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, on the suicide front, I mean, I haven't, um, there's, I haven't had anyone particularly close to me um, top themselves, fortunately, but I realised when I was about 30 um, that I knew quite a lot of people around my age, you know, who I went to school with and knew afterwards who had died. And I realised like all of them had committed suicide. Um, and again, fortunately, no one particularly close, but it's still, you know, the, and the, the national stats would bear that out also. Um, but, you know, that was just another of my observations that uh, led to my sense of um, gloom. I, yeah, I don't, I mean, there's, I think there's a number of things of it. And, you know, I'm particularly engineered to, to have that perspective because um, my dad was 16 when the Germans invaded the Netherlands. And so he spent those years of the war sort of alternately hiding out and starving, not because he was Jewish, but they were rounding up kind of fighting age young men and he'd sort of have to hide out in the attic for two weeks. And then he did end up in a a labor camp. Again, not um, part of the final solution, but the Quislings were sort of, you know, exercising their power by throwing young people into labor camps. And, you know, he told me they'd sort of make them polish their spades and then shovel rocks from one you know, side to another, but he said he only survived that um, because he got diphtheria um, and then was hospitalized and then they found out he could paint. Um, but so that by way of saying the outlook I inherited from him was somewhat um, uh, uh, pragmatic in the shade might be, and that he had a very objective sort of view of civilization and a, a fairly keen appreciation of how uh, easily it can um, fray and disintegrate. So I grew up with that um, outlook firmly entrenched and he was pretty old when I was born and my mother was quite old. So I was, yeah, I was thinking that because uh, my dad was just in the war and um, right. old when he, I, you know, always when he had yeah. Yeah, late 40s kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Fruit of withered loins, as my dad would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and so, so they were, and they were both, my mother was 
<laughs> fairly eccentric also. So I sort of grew up as an only child in the countryside. So I wasn't really socialised. And I think when I started, and so I went to that rural school and then I went to Onslow College in, in Johnson Bowl. Um, and, yeah, I think I hadn't really been conditioned to sort of sign on for the the social compact. So... I just remember from quite an early age noticing this sort of discord between how people um, projected and saw themselves and the sort of actuality of how they lived. Like, you know, like Johnsonville is a fairly, you know, white bread suburb or was then, but still, you know, people were getting into sort of nasty fights and, you know, there was... Yeah, I you know I just remember it in the in the form of the kind of the iconography of being a teenager in that era, and that versus the sort of the sort of slightly glib um, projected existence of of people's parents in their nice suburban houses. Yeah. Versus their sons carving Aussie into their forearms, or you know, <laughs> kind of various other things um and certainly yeah that would be early days of that sort of perception so that that's a really nice kind of background of where perhaps your creative artistic roots lay um how how did that how did that um identity as a person slowly form itself into thinking I'm, I enjoy the arts or photography and how, how did you move along that kind of path? How did you mold those things together? Because, you know, for everyone else who had that opinion, it probably would have ended up <laughs> being in those fights and being um, maybe leading a future life that wasn't decorated like yours is now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Or decorated in uh, different ways. Um, I think also in, in, with my mother being a scientist, I had a sort of very keen um, awareness of the sort of equality, I suppose, of, you know, life and death and every creature. And, and also due to my father, I think a, a pretty developed sense of fairness, um, which coupled with being, you know, arguably physlexic and that I can't actually fight to save myself. I used to get in a lot of fights in primary school, but then realized I just was not <laughs> not very handy. You know, I could barely throw a ball either. So I think, um, and, you know, I often got in fights with, you know, just with fucking bullies and pricks because I'd just, I'd just start um, laying into them with my mouth and they'd return the favor with their fists. Um and so I think I think those sort of elements of observation and and wanting to kind of draw people's atten- attention to it are a foundation. And then not being particularly uh, well suited to going to school, which I never really finished doing, um, and and the other kind of um, things that led me astray. At about, you know, I think I was about 20. I, so I was, I was pretty good at art growing up and so on and, and not very good at school. And then 
you know, wayward teenage years and sort of having a mortal moment at the age of 20 to sort of terrified that I'd be 25 and, you know, living in a flat being, continuing to be a bum. Um, I just, I kind of uh, looked at, you know, I did a skills assessment versus opportunity <laughs> and and realised that photography suited me well for, for how I kind of engaged with the world and what I wanted to do um, ultimately. And, and I, I started my course in 1994. I, I was at Wellington Polytech in 1994. I got into what was called the AGFA bursary course. I think it was. Or the no certificate in professional photography, okay, um, which was a purely technical sort of um, year-long course. I think about twelve people from you know three or four hundred applicants or something. It was like quite a quite a good course to get into, and it was really useful because it was purely practical. And then I just sort of bumbled along since, basically. But did that? Um... Did you do a degree in it afterwards, or was that that was your only? Form? No, I just did that. Um, is, is the polytechnic? Is that now what became Massey then, or is that was that something separate? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And some of the same people are still there. Okay. Um, from when I was there, so that would have been ninety four. Yeah, I think it was the last year of Wellington Polytech. Right. Sorry, um, I don't know if that answered your question. But no, 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 completely. That's, yeah. That was that's interesting. So did you find that, I mean, was that more a technical um, yeah, training yeah. rather than, you know, anything yeah. that might have been on the theory side? Yeah. And then, and then so what did you do after that? Because... Um, um, yeah, I sort of, I, I did commissioned work for a number of years. And, I mean, it was really only ever a means towards an end to allow me to produce um, my own work. Um, which I probably didn't, I didn't really kick into gear with any earnestness until the late 90s, about 2000, which is when I began the um, prison body of work. Um, and then, that's, you know, I've just been doing my own stuff. And what, what was your, what sort of commercial stuff were you doing? You know, just whatever came up. That yeah, editorial, yeah, editorial advertising. Yeah. I mean, way back when I even shot some weddings, which was a, terrifying yeah. experience but we all we all have that yeah. skeleton in our closet <laughs> we just don't talk about it now yeah. um so what so when you did that was lockups do, do you want to tell some say something about lockups yeah i've sort of oscillated it was originally called chambers and i've gone back to calling it that so okay um, for your for your uh when you <laughs> when you transcribe this for the history books um <laughs> So that came, I was living in Auckland for a while and I broke into the old magistrate's court, which is now a metropolis, um, you know, tower, tower, tower block or luxury right, okay. apartments or something. And um, I ended up down in the basement and there were holding cells and they were really like, there was a, a real pregnancy to the atmosphere. It was like they were sort of knee deep in water and you could just you could just sort of feel something like you know if if I was to be um, if I was to hazard a sort of airy fairy guess it might be the accumulated trauma of those held in there um, and there were two two things that struck me about that the first was they were completely covered in graffiti 
and a lot of it was gang graffiti. And it occurred to me that, you know, that there's sort of, if you, if you look beyond the placement of the sort of uh, people that that graffiti comes from on the lower end of the feeding chain of, you know, civilized society, then, you know, what the graffiti illustrates is sort of, you know, blood feuds and kind of life and death for a, for a credo and, you know, revenge, murder, all of that sort of stuff. So there was a sort of an underlying in the abstract sort of epic or cinematic quality to those. But the main thing was just the, the, I guess the psychic climate of those spaces. And I thought about whether that could be um, expressed photographically. And that's what led to the chamber's work. So you went to lots of different places to try and... Yeah, I went through, I went through most of the prisons and uh, most of the psych hospitals, most of which in terms of psych hospitals were closed down by the time. So that was sort of around between 2000 and 2005. And when I began it, I, um, there's, uh, the Minister of Corrections was, uh, I think, fairly liberal. And somehow I knew someone who knew his secretary and went in and met with him and kind of gave him a line about, you know, recording the architecture of incarceration for posterity and sort of, you know, because, you know, and sort of butted him up about the evolution of how prisoners were being treated and prisons were done. So it was sort of like documenting the bad, you know, I gave him some sort of line, but mainly about architectural history, which was, you know, true, but left out my um, more maudlin intent Um, and, and somehow managed to get access pretty much carte blanche to the prisons through him. And then the psych hospitals, I just sort of broke into generally. So what, so what was the experience of going to the prisons? They, they, would they, you'd, they'd have they'd move prisoners out so you could come and take a picture? Yeah, well, no, not entirely, but I wasn't, I wasn't shooting prisoners. I was just shooting empty yeah. spaces. So the whole idea was that um, in producing very large prints, you'd give an impression of what that space was like. Um, so it was all shot on eight by ten. I dragged an eight by ten camera through. Um, it was uh, sort of profoundly unpleasant. Would ultimately, I mean, there's some, there's you know, there's moments of levity and that the the sort of tone of humour in those places can be quite um, gallows like, which is not dissimilar. You know, I had a an uncle who was a pathologist and my grandfather was a surgeon and stuff like that. And they tend to have a fairly droll sense of humor as well. Um, so there was sort of that side of thing, which was pretty funny, but also it's just, they're just, they're just such um, unwell environments. Um, and, and quite, you know, different places have very different tones to them too. You know, for example, like, um, that was still the time when Mount Eden Remand was an old stone building. And that was sort of like a, you know, it was really, it was quite alive, alive in the objective and that it was sort of full of hoots and howls and, you know, people mouthing off to the guards and, you know, it was really dank and sort of um, kind of humid and, 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 you know, it felt quite alive, whereas, like, um, Parrot Parimarino is is just like a fucking 
you know, it's like a sarcophagus or something like that. It's just such a, a kind of just a, a sort of tense, dank, cold, sealed off place. And and I think the the most unpleasant one was probably Christchurch, which just felt just, I mean, you know, <laughs> well, you know what the city feels like, the prison felt like that times a thousand or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they're very charged environments, um, and each each have quite different tones to them as well. And that was, I mean, that was um, that was a lot of dedication. What what in terms of self, you know, a self funded, self motivated product uh, project. Mm. What um, did you have any other people you were chatting to, like photographers or mentors, or was it you know <laughs> were you you were you aiming it as a book or were you trying to get it into an exhibition? What was yeah, your- I mean. Uh, I work then, and uh, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm undertaking some new, I'm early stages of some new stuff now, but I, until now, unless I change and going forward, unless I change, I'm, I'm pretty much a kind of uh, monograph and exhibition uh, is, is the sort of framework in, in what I'm thinking about when I build my work, and I was then. Um, I mean, it was... I had a couple of shows with that that were pretty well received. They were uh, they were all I think they were part of kind of small group shows. A couple at the Adam Gallery and one at McNamara up in Whanganui. Um And I didn't. I probably didn't. Uh, it was instructive. I'll get back to your other bit too. But it was sort of instructive with hindsight and thinking about a body of work to the sort of finished point in terms of the undertaking a project with the idea of it being finished when there's a book and there's exhibitions whereas at that stage it was just like I was undertaking a body of work and kept undertaking it and it undertook itself largely into boxes in my archives (laughs) Um, which is yeah so I mean I, I still intend to publish it at some point and it will fit with the mob stuff yeah yeah a new body of work, but at, you know, I could have approached it a little differently in hindsight, but yes, yeah, so it's a huge body of work that only a sort of handful of things have seen okay. any um, exposure. As far as mentors, um, I'm not particularly uh, adept on either <laughs> on sort of taking advice um, and didn't, I mean, I tend to kind of grab my insight and inspiration sort of piecemeal from various sort of um, sources and as I go. And I I haven't really, I certainly haven't had anyone in terms of mentorship. I mean, the closest that it would come would probably be in like 1994, I assisted um, a guy called Sal Crusillo, who's a neighbour of yours, Okay. He was an 80s ad photographer from Wellington and, you know, really lovely fellow that sort of died in the wool 80s ad photographer, yep. if you can imagine. I can. The sort of open <laughs> open neck shirt and hairy chest. But he, <laughs> he had a really good um, studio set up and a lot of 8x10 gear. So I um, maintained that relationship right. yep. um, for, some time, for yep. some time and, you know, hastened, hastened his... Um, path to the grave badgering him for equipment and so on um but no he's he's not he's not there yet but 
Right. He's, he must be quite old. So now. did you assist him then? Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I yeah. sort of assisted him maybe for about three or four months, but I was, I was really not not any good as an assistant, <laughs> um, which he knew. <laughs> um, so, in term, yeah, mentorship. No, I just sort of grab it. I grab what I, I mean, you know, there are people whose insight and advice have been important to me at various stages, but, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a particular acolyte of anyone in particular. Or, yeah. And, and the other way around then, in terms of whose work were you looking at and admiring at that sort of stage? Yeah, so I date myself if I talk about that sort of stuff because I was... Don't worry, so do I. I was thinking about, you know, guys like Gursky and um, I, I, it occurred to me, I remember once one of the really striking shows I saw in Wellington was um, Sugimoto's portraits of... Uh, Madame Tussauds wax, yeah. wax figures that showed at City Gallery. I don't know when that would have been, late mid to late 90s or something. Um, and I think, you know, I was thinking about that recently and realised that was probably had some of the genesis for the mob stuff as far as a technical approach yeah, and a yeah. kind of a, a, an, a, a, an empirical um, example of that stuff working. Um, yeah, and... You know, I, I, I mean, there's a bunch of people. Uh, I was really into Robert Longo as well, who's a who does sort of um, charcoal, vast charcoal kind of iconic images. Um, you know, all, all and everyone. Um, but I also get a lot of stuff from literature and music and so on. Also, so I, I kind of just pulled, I pull elements. That, that work or that kind of uh, strike chords and then try and kind of weave those into how I do my practice. You, you created, a, I mean, I don't want to get onto the book yet, yeah. but um, the technical style you have there and the technical ability is, is brilliant. They're, they're stunning images, like you talk about Sugimoto and stuff. I mean, was that was that down to a great year of being trained or technically? I mean, you, you obviously, I mean, I don't count myself in that, you know, I do a different type of work, but I don't, I don't, I don't shoot 10, eight or five, four, but um, your, your, your images are just absolutely, you know, so crisp. That must, you must've worked very hard at achieving that technical end result, really. Um, especially you. in the, especially in the, you know, it's not like you're in a studio. <laughs> no, no. Well, I did. I did. Um, yeah. I'm reasonably adept in a studio if I need to be. And when I was at Wellington Polytech, it was pre-digital, or you know, the first whispers of digital were coming in. But I was mainly, you know, trying to work on the four by five. You know, I don't know whether it's you know compensating for a lack of self-esteem or just you know, it's like what's the biggest one that does yeah. the, has yeah, the most detail kind of they say. thing. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it goes without saying, given that I'm used photography, but you know, not to suggest that that's why you do it. But, you know. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I, I worked with that sort of equipment and my, my uh, foundation at that period was strictly analog. And then, you know, 
was analog for a long time. I mean, I've done a lot of digital stuff. It's it's pretty readily transferable, I find. Um, in terms of, you know, the mob stuff, for example, as being the kind of, I suppose, crystallization of technique and, and craft. Um, so all the prison work also was shot using natural light um, and on 8 by 10 And I did, I mean, I and I shot that for a number of years, but it wasn't until after that that I began to look at kind of when things transitioned from hand printing to digital output that I started working on, you know, scanning solutions and so on, that I began to understand the sort of limits of my technique, you know, when you start looking at a four gig scan of your neg, you can see where you didn't have your focal planes entirely um, exact and so on and so forth. So I actually um, pre, yeah, probably 2008 or something like that, I went through quite a long stage of really getting really fucking anal about equipment and, and testing lenses of just, you know, under, especially with 8 by 10 I mean, if you're sort of out even a millimetre, if you're not stopping down or if you're shooting close up, it can really, you can get quite divergent, you know, um, planes of focus and so on. So it was, you know, there was, I had a kind of broad grasp of craft and then I really fine tuned it about 15 years, 10, 15 years ago. Um, And then the aesthetic is, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, um, coming together of what rings my bell in terms of kind of organic qualities um, and kind of practical solution to what I was trying to achieve, Um, which, you know, which basically is not, you know, trying to act as a kind of conduit, using photography as a conduit for spirit. So the less you introduce and, you know, the more, what is there can kind of be absorbed into the film. That makes sense. So that's why I shoot yeah. natural light um, and have been for a while. I mean, I may, you know, I have some ideas about some other stuff. I may go back to lighting for some other things, but, you know, fundamentally I like the idea of using photography to just sort of absorb something that is. Yes. Does that, did that, uh, no, I thought that, that, that is, that is something, but then there was oh, that. No, that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> full stop. So how did, uh, so how did the, you know, how did the prison work morph or slowly move into doing mongrelism? Um, I mean, it was more, it, it's, it, it wasn't the obvious uh, relationship to prisons and gangs. Um, I mean, obviously that is there, but that wasn't why I did it. It wasn't like, yeah, because these are the people from inside there. But it was, you know, born of, I mean, the basic thing in the abstract is that prisons represent a relationship with architectural space in its purest sense. Uh, I mean, short of the grave, I don't think there's anything that is so sort of specifically prescribed as prisons in terms of a human's relationship to an architectural space. Because, you know, what are the steps back from that are hospitals, you know, that's more amorphous and more kind of in and out from day-to-day life and then, you know, courtrooms again, blah, blah, blah. So prisons are sort of 
you know, the next step is two, I would argue. You know, schools are another, you know, and as organs of state control as well. Schools are another avenue. Churches are an avenue, but they're much more woven in. And I think in terms of that sort of structural response to a subject relative to a kind of seeking to illustrate and explore universal truths and the gangs have a similar relationship to the fabric of society in that what spurred me to start on the gang stuff was thinking about um, sort of male power and, and group dynamics and, you know, adherence to symbol and yada, 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 and fraternity and so on, which I had, I was feeling sensitive to because I'd just moved to the US and it was at the tail end of the Bush presidency. Um, and so I was thinking of those things and, you know, what what are really succinct kind of um, constrained representations of some of those forces. And, you know, so obviously in the US, I was thinking very much in terms of the military. Um, and, you know, they, if, you, if you think of a spectrum, you've sort of got things like sports teams, corporate world, military, and then gangs kind of gangs like the prison are at the sort of end of a, a kind of a sort of forcing together of those elements. And, you know, when you take gangs out of the kind of universe of moral relativity, they embody in the abstract the same things in terms of fraternity, loyalty, perseverance, you know, signing yourself up for a creed, all of that sort of stuff. That, now that was a good that was a good word. Um, if you take gangs out of moral relativity, because um, I guess that's the that's the kind of crunch point of your of what you've done for ten years and yeah. is whether you can do that. Um, I was I was chatting with my my wife just before, mm-hmm. um, and she was she hasn't seen your work. I, I, I was talking about it after the photo book, and I had the book yeah. here. She was going, how how can you know? It's you know it's it's the whole thing that you must have heard a billion times about it's the mongrel yeah. mob they're they're thugs they they do all this stuff why legitimize um them yeah. through beautiful work and i i, I don't want to i know you're probably sick of that question but i feel like i have to at some point put that no, it's it's a it's a it's an entirely valid um concern and it is it's just an unmistakable part of the subject matter. When I talk about taking them out of the universe of moral relativity, it's in terms of thinking about them as an artifact. Um, And I suppose I would um, frame that kind of comment in the same way in in coming from a a background of science and that, you know, science does not, um, you know, what's the word? uh, Well, Place, place relative value on species, for example. It's just like, you know, what is what exists? Why does it exist? How did it come to exist? And so, you know, I do in, in kind of putting together the framework of my practice, I do have a somewhat clinical approach to that. Um, and, you know, if I, in, in response to what you said, you know, I'm, there, there are a couple of things. Yes, people say they, the work glorifies or, you know, why should they be shown beautifully and so on and so forth? I mean, there's two responses to that. One is that I photographed them in natural light in their environment 
and not brought anything to it. You know, I've photographed them as they are, so it's not that I'm kind of gussying them up to to exalt them. Um, and the second thing is, I think a lot of people's issue with with that craft side of things and how they're depicted photographically is relative to a a completely accepted um, placement of them in an imagistic um, coding whereby it's okay if you have black and white gritty photographs of them or police mugshots that that's acceptable. Um, And, you know, if I was to step out on that limb, it's like, you know, people have been selling fucking newspapers based on their exploits for however many decades and, you know, in, in, a, in I find that more abhorrent than placing them in an environment that is not heavily laden with accepted doctrine, you know, because uh, the any media depiction is, is pretty codified. Um, and I think in an art environment, it you can step away from that And so that brings me right back to what I think is valuable about um, depicting them in a way that is not just carrying on the narrative of them as villains and uh, murderers and so on and so forth, which is to, you know, understand them as a product of New Zealand society and New Zealand history. And for me, I think their stories and their histories, however abhorrent and violent they may be, they are valuable in that they are the result forces in the community. And therefore, if people choose to kind of engage with in a in an in a in an intelligent way, you know, something might be able to be learned or understood about why these guys exist. And it's, you know, I would underscore to my deathbed um, my revulsion at some of the crimes and some of the uh, attitudes that are extant in the gangs. But I also, you know, and I I do believe by and large in the lines struck by law and order and that when you cross those things need to happen. But I also understand, understood and now understand with a degree more of... um, intimacy just where some of those acts and where some of those attitudes and how they came to be and from the sorts of experiences people had and you know I I'm sort of (laughs) you know uh it's it's a little bit of a uh long boat what long bow to draw but you know in a certain respect my my mother's family are from Hawke's Bay fifth generation so came at the epicenter of the colonial process I'm related to arguably some of the forces that have ultimately resulted in um, the uh, coalescence of gangs but then also being the descendant being the son of someone who suffered under occupation I have a very um, keen sense of the inheritance of trauma and I'm you know I'm first generation inheriting it and, you know, I, I think it's fair to say when people inherit that shit, shit through a number of generations, it, it has, it, it exerts dark forces, it can exert dark forces upon them.
and that's not to excuse anything, but I think, you know, the more people can say this happened and that happened and, you know, the more people can move towards evolving rather than just constantly kind of, you know, ignoring it or pretending yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist or pretending we're all great. I made, I made loads of good notes here for back when I was going to do it with you a few, few weeks back. And one of the things you said in your book is here, I'm not here to expose secrets. It went from, I want to do these portraits to I'm going to do a portrait because the existing image of you guys outside the group is made up of police and media. My work has to have a dimension. It's not about making up a different story, not about translating and saying this means that the work is a conduit, the end pursued being a truthful portrait of an identity. I'm not telling your history. It's not my place to do that, which I thought summed up quite well what you've just been saying, really. Um, yeah, that, sounds, that sounds a lot more succinct than what I just said. <laughs> I'll, I'll cut out the last 20 minutes. <laughs> joking. Um, but, but also with that, and um, I suppose uh, I did my photography degree in MA years ago in London, and I kind of always enjoyed that, enjoyed that theory side. You kind of, you kind of mentioned... Um, uh, almost receiving the spirit through the lens a little while ago. And um, the way you've, you've said that about, I'm not about telling your history and everything, but at the same time, you must accept that your authorship and creation of that piece is still mediated through you, through the way a book's been published and through all the, all the channels of, you know, the way that book is then distributed and all that kind of stuff, which is, yeah, ironically in New Zealand and the way it's way it will ever be distributed from a UK publisher is, you know, has links to colonialism and all that stuff. Of course. It's, yep. Yep. But, um, but anyway, that's good. And the other thing, I mean, uh, the, the one thing I'll say about that is say, you know, all of those things are totally malleable as far as arguments and, you know, you could take any point and, and have strong grounds for whatever, choice you chose to make so it for me it just kind of boils down to when I'm doing it finding my course through it based on you know not to sound hackney but what feels right and what feels appropriate and you know trying to be honest towards what I'm trying to achieve and undertake and you know sometimes stuff like you say you know the dynamics of publishing and distribution and stuff is you know, mercenary and superficial and has within it certain power structures and so on and so forth. But I think the thing, and it gets back to why I choose to shoot on large format and, you know, with natural light and stuff, I think the more kind of pure and kind of essence intent process you can start by the time you get to those points, even if it's within a either a hostile or a kind of, you know, a a structure of dissemination that is discordant to your intent. It's like the thing will hold its own kind of weight and motive force, despite what hands it goes through sort of thing. Yeah. Which is the same with the exhibition. It's like the idea is to kind of carry that thing into the exhibition space. So it holds its own presence, regardless of what people's perceptions are or their own personal perception when they're engaging with it, which to me is very different from the um, stuff.co.nz. 
<laughs> well, um, how, in terms of, uh, I'm getting to the end of it, but I don't want to get to the end of that whole process of how you did the pictures and everything. But um, in terms of the book and the exhibition, I think it was when I arrived in New Zealand, it was the first, your exhibition was at Wellington City Gallery. And it was the first yeah. thing first thing I saw and I was like wow that's um that's that, that's quite something that's a, that's an introduction to New Zealand culture um <laughs> <laughs> which which is true actually I just thought if I didn't know anything about yeah and culture I was like how does that exist in 2015 that's um that kind of blew my mind that it wasn't just I don't know it wasn't all kind of just bicultural, egalitarian. Well, no, not that. <laughs> not that at all. That it hadn't been, that it hadn't been forcibly crushed. I suppose. Right, right. Um, that it was allowed to exist. Right. Um, I think they. I think they have tried and continue to try to forcibly crush it. But I think when something is as you know, I think getting back to the terrible acts and so on and so forth that they're notorious for, I mean, you know, my perception is that by and large, those are the points at which their ecology spikes through. And, you know, their ecology is, there are a lot of damaged people within it. So that stuff does eventuate. And also certainly uh, 30 or 40 years ago there was much more of an ethos of doing that but you know there I think one could make a pretty strong argument that they fit the metrics of a people um, given that they're a number of generations deep and have varying degrees of quite sophisticated and developed um, uh, sort of nuance for their uh, gang uh, their their group uh, um, centered outlook on life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so to go back a bit, you know, you, you you went in there. You had an introduction to some people. How did you establish that? You know, rapport. Rapport is that the word? How did you establish? You know, trust. I suppose that they thought you're someone that we will let in and take some pictures of us, you know? I, um, I mean, I think that the sort of the first, the sort of fulcrum of entry was probably the fact that I wasn't kind of document, you know, I wasn't following them around documenting what they do and so on. And then I suppose my, I, I mean, I, I guess there's some element of my manner in interacting with them that I wasn't, you know, I tried not to, um, talk as much as I normally do. <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess it's just been very straight up and just treating them as I would treat anyone else, really, which is I tend to find if you treat people with respect, they'll be respectable to you. Um, and there are very, you know, there are very... The people I've dealt with have been very open and very hospitable and very... Um, I haven't found people who've tried to prove too much to me. And I think some of that is borne by some of the history some of these guys have. They don't actually need to kind of prove it. And I'm talking, I mean, obviously there are elements of trying to prove something when you um, present yourself in that manner, but on a, an interpersonal level, they're pretty comfortable in their own skin. Um, 
So in terms of building trust, I think it was just, I just developed relationships and, you know, was not, I did it over a long period of time. Um, And I think, you know, ultimately also the way in which I've worked with the work in tandem with them and so on and so forth is, you know, it's, it's just trying to be very open and frank and straightforward and, um, yeah. (laughs) And the, the, the interviews and the, you know, that are all transcribed at the end, did that all come towards the end of the process or was that? No, some of that stuff was quite early on and it wasn't. Because I I felt like if you want to build a relationship, some of those conversations you had, I mean, were just mind-blowingly clever, you know, open, direct conversations about really big issues that, you know, surprised me that they could have that self-awareness about that culture, really, I guess. Well, I don't, I, I mean... I don't think it's that surprising in that, you know, certainly in terms of sort of outlook with regards the New Zealand construct as a community, you know, because a lot of those guys have been at the raw or the sharp end of that or the, or the end that people don't want to deal with, then they have quite a crystalline perspective um, on, on how it all works. Um, and yeah, no, a lot of those conversations I was just recording incidentally. I didn't really know what I, at the time, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. Um, but just they felt important to have. And, you know, some of them also felt, um, you know, uh, quite important. And at the time, it's hard to kind of characterize how they felt important at the time because it was a very abstract thing. But it was like, you know, one or two of them, I'd just be having this conversation. It was like, fuck, this is, you know, I was just crashing at this dude's place and now we're really kind of getting into it. And then it's like, you know, two months later, like, for example, one of them died in a car accident and then another one, you know, died of health complications and, and that sort of thing. So there was... You know, there's, there are, I think when you, and just getting back to how I built trust and so on, is also just, you know, I, I tend to just be who I am and not, not, you know, there's some degree of kind of calibration perhaps of my diction and yeah. editing my speak when I talk, you know, but yeah. not, not trying to kind of go, hey, bros, you know, <laughs> what's up, <laughs> sort of. You know, it's just like, and and also the the mechanism of shooting large format is such a kind of ceremonial process that it takes each of us out of our own selves into a kind of space of um, of ceremony and practice. You know, it's like, yeah, Yeah. sit still, have to tell them to do this. And it's all, it's all like, yeah, it's just, it's a different time space than general kind of, getting together so that's the other thing so in terms of the actual um design of the book um you said it was very much in collaboration how how did that work how much was you how much was the publisher how much was uh Uh, not not a lot with the publisher the publisher also did the um line did the design work was a guy called ben weaver who's who's part of here press so i got with him as a designer, initially, I was going to go with a different publisher. Um, and, you know, it was, 
Yeah, I mean, the design process was pretty much a, a very craft-oriented working with divining the right type and, you know, the basic bones of it was already, you know, I had a pretty clear idea of how I wanted it. So it was a, a that relationship was a fine-tuning, which I find a really enjoyable way to work with a designer. I tend to be, you know, I tend to try and resolve how I want it because it works with the intent of the work and the ethos of the work and so on and so forth. So that then working with the designer is all about the crafting of font and layout and type and, you know, that sort of thing rather than actually coming up with a concept. Um, although he came up with the concept for the um, gold embossed. Yeah, I wanted to put that image on the cover, but the two two tones of buckram and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, and it's it's like the the structure of what I wanted to achieve and the structure of what I had as far as ingredients kind of dictated the structure of the book. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, and it has that. Ask has, again if it didn't. No, no, it has that very biblical feel, doesn't it? With the yeah, where did that come from? Well, so there's, I mean, there's a number of the, the, the sort of, oh, so the relationship with the subjects in terms of the creation of the book, it was, it was largely a case of, you know, I structured it and then I sent them dummies and they'd come back with comments and I'd incorporate that. And, you know, certainly with those large swaths of redaction that came from, from them um, and also some of the editing and cadence, um, of who was next to whom and so on. But I've, I've basically edited it geographically, grouping guys from the same crew, um, hierarchically and all of that sort of stuff. So it's 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 born of how they function um, in the way that it's laid out. And um, the, so the, the sort of the idea was to... Um, you know, the sort of the broad superficial concept was to make a handbook for them, like something that could be used as a handbook. So all of the stuff in it is from them and not edited down. So there's no there's no editorializing, there's no kind of, you know, mission statement or something like that. It's actually even though it feels like quite a a didactic book which is purposeful also which I'll get onto in a moment it is there's actually no other than translation of words um there's no actual translation so it's sort of it kind of feels like something it isn't so it looks like it's a textbook but when you get into it you get more and more information but you never actually get you know you're not getting a summation or a package of it and you know so that's why a lot of the transcripts really you know some of them really just go on and on and on um but for one thing i didn't it didn't feel appropriate for me to edit down their stories or their conversations and the other thing is i think what happens is when you get such a morass of conversation it's like at certain points it'll suddenly just crystallize into really kind of cutting or or heavy um, ideas or, or so on. So that was important to do that. And it was, it was also to kind of, um, it's consciously 
full and also impenetrable at the same time. It's like no matter how deep you go, you never get to the end of it. And, you know, one of, one of the design conceits, which in some ways is superficial, but in the other way was to kind of try and mess with the, the optics or the, the fact that I'm Pākehā and they're a largely Māori group and that, you know, that the accusations of it being some sort of ethnography or something like that. So to make the book kind of like a colonial era ethnography, okay. but then for it to be totally not that at all. It's sort of like it looks like it's me telling you how to look at the game, but then once you get in there, everything is kind of comes so from the, well, the biblical wellspring of there. Yeah, so the biblical thing oh, that's was, that's nice, yeah, was, yeah. was conscious like that. And also in the hope that, um, you know, I hope, I hope, and it has been borne up um, anecdotally that, you know, a lot of those transcripts, especially from some of the leaders who are now dead, you know, those are artifacts of wisdom, outlook, direction that now exist physically. So that biblical aspect of it is it's like, you know, because there are, there are, there are quite spiritual relationships that members have to their leaders and so on and so forth. So to uh, enfranchise that aspect and to kind of um, make it physical for use in the future once they've passed on was also yeah. a, I love the an way understanding and making it biblical looking. Peter Black described it as a taonga for Aotearoa kind of thing. And it's like, wow, that's a really lovely way of looking at it. And I think, you're right. As as time goes by, and it that's that's I guess that's just photography. But um, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it it builds that patina of um, a historical document, really, doesn't it? As well yes. as yeah. a contemporary um, insight into a people's, as you know, you described it, kind of thing with their own culture and everything. So yeah, yeah, and um, and also yeah. you know, the most of the guys I was working with were of a, an earlier era which is now, you know, the whole climate is very different, even in the yes. 10, you know, 13 years that I worked on it is very, very different now. So, so how has it changed? Because it was, it was really interesting at the, uh, oh, that was a very, that was a very good cough <laughs> into the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> into the, into the inside of your elbow. That was, a, you know, yeah. COVID cough. Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <World> <laughs> yeah. what, what was I going to say? It was, um, yeah, th- that's right. The uh, not knowing the history of the mongrel bog, really, you know, in any depth at all. Um, how has it changed? Because I mean, it, when we were at the photo book talk, um, and you were sitting alongside, um, you know, one of the members whilst during the talk, that was a that was an interesting dynamic. I think because I felt like, um, I don't know, I felt like there was a kind of bunch of. Uh, white liberal kind of academic photography keen people in the room who were slightly uncomfortable about they're fine with the book I'm fine with you but the reality of someone sitting there from the mob was a really interesting dynamic to add to that talk which I really liked um but 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 you know he was talking that it's not that same violent organization that perhaps it was 20 years ago and they're trying to do a lot to help people in prison who are members of the mob and all this oh, kind of stuff. Yeah. I was interested I was just interested to know purely culturally what, what what's happening. What what was what was it like? Yeah, I can't really presume to give an overview because my 
you know, my relationship to them is really fundamentally boils down to the relationships I built with people and the experiences I had. But, you know, I saw some very um, powerful um, presentations of people who have come from fucking horrible environments and horrible experiences both visited upon them and that they've visited upon people and have, you know, forged wisdom at that coalface and have, um, you know, have acted upon that wisdom in, in leading their people to, to better things. And, you know, New Zealand is very, you know, mainstream New Zealand is very flexible in its concept of concepts of acceptability and that they, you know, they, they, everyone will tell you how bad the ideas of child poverty and so on and so forth are and that it's a terrible thing and they'll, they'll frown in, a, in an earnest way about it, which, you know, fundamentally means they accept it. But when the outcomes of those sorts of things happen, then suddenly they have very hard and fast parameters of what's acceptable and so on and so forth. And that, again, getting back to the point of saying that, you know, for example, example murder is not acceptable but if you take into account the different lived experience of New Zealand for some people versus others you can see where those sort of acts might fit as a response to the experiences they've had so um, again you know just understanding what sort of environment some of these guys came from both foisted upon them and that they inhabited by choice and seeing the the you know huge evolutions of attitudes towards women towards looking after their children towards um the sort of the plagues of suicide and addiction and so on and so forth is you know these are these are sort of light years developed from where they would have been 30 40 20 years ago and um it's it's sort of it's um, important to take that into account because it, it often doesn't register in the mainstream because still relative to white middle-class New Zealand it's still out there and down there and in the world of prisons and you know broken suburbs and violence and so on and so forth but yeah. within that ecology where you know many of these people not everyone you know there are people from from a huge spectrum of sort of walks of life uh, related to and members of the mob, but if you're kind of talking about the most kind of cartoon perception of them inhabiting those dark spaces, then the the kind of evolution of them within those dark spaces is profound and enormously um, inspiring and impressive, which gets back to what you were saying or what we were talking about in terms of my strong feeling is that New Zealand needs to have a dialogue with the forces that these people come from because it's, it's, you know, you talked about why they weren't crushed, um, you know, yes, yeah. 40, 50 years of, of uh, the state trying to crush them has not uh, worked. And, you know, I, I, well, I personally had a lot of very instructive and incredibly life affirming and, um, powerful experiences about what 
can be learned from the sort of positive developments in those communities as well. Yeah. And, you know, who it's, it's enormously challenging because there are, you know, no sooner are people responding to the challenges of the past in a constructive way, the new challenges come in and, you know, as far as I can see, New Zealand is fucking awash in meth and, you know, a, a very different attitude of um, gangism starting to take sway also. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's and I, I it's, think so uh, much comes down to, um, you know, only having to read a couple of those transcripts of the interview yeah. you had and you, you know, um, I, I think when I was first making notes on talking to you, I'd write something and then I'd, I'd read a bit of that and go, well, okay, that's answered that. Then I'd write something else and then, oh, well, that's answered that. And yeah. there's, there's so much through just looking at what they have been through. And, you know, as, as you put so, so brilliantly, you know, if you have child poverty, if you have poverty, there's, there's results at the end of it. So don't, don't shake your head at how bad child poverty is and then be surprised that crime is an issue 20, 30 years down the line, really. Yeah, and it's and that's also just one aspect you know, I, of it. I know, and you know, it's 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 so much of it is relative too. Like I think about just the dumb shit I did as a teenager when I was drunk, and you know, some of these guys have you know gone to prison for a good part of their life for doing. You know, when you grow up and you can fight before you can write your name or or something like that, then if you do something dumb when you're pissed, it's like something different yeah. may happen than, you know, kind of professing your love to some girl who's never met you or something. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It's sort of like, or, yeah. you know, falling off a skateboard or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, it's um, amazing piece of work. I mean, it feels like that was 10 years of your life. That must be, that must be everything going on in your head. <laughs> you know, it was such a big chunk <laughs> of your life. Yeah, I think it was a it was a real forging of my um, vision and artistic approach through that process. So, how does it feel now? Because that you know that's your that's your magnus opus. How do you move on? What you work? No, with? it's not my it's not my magnus opus. It's a part of my magnum opus. Magnum opus. Um, yes, I have. I have. Uh, aspirations that should I survive this plague I'll uh, hope to undertake so are you able to talk about anything that you're working on or don't uh, look it's it's a I mean I have intentions for the world and you know certainly starting in this um, crumbling kleptocracy but the <laughs> um, sort of the thing I want to get under my belt is a a kind of an engagement a final swan song or a final engagement with New Zealand um, kind of uh, fulcrumed on my maternal uh, history in the Hawke's Bay. So sort of using that relationship to the, you know, original cultural sin of the country to um, engage with the things that I um, have worked with with the prison work and the mob stuff to, to sort of put it simply um and again it's a it's a sort of it's a yeah a, i mean that's a that's a bare architecture of it okay 
And have you started, you started shooting anything yet, or not? Uh, I have. I have piecemeal um, begun some stuff over recent years, but I, I'm sort of getting back to what I was saying before about um, building a body of work, sort of as a full body of work, whereby book and exhibition are part of it. Is sort of the mindset I'm at at the moment. I don't particularly want to take. 10 years on this one um, <laughs> it, you, for, for various reasons, not, not to try and belt it up, but just to try and get a degree of intensity and clarity yeah. um, that, you know, the prison work and the mob stuff was me sort of finding my way through something. And this will be more grounded and quite rigorous yeah. uh, research and then quite um, spear, uh, quite uh, precise undertaking of work. Which I guess it has to be if you're, I mean, you're traveling over, you know, how often do you come over to sort of see your folks and stuff? Back in the days when there used to be international air travel, I used to come <laughs> over. <laughs> at least, at least um, when my folks were alive, I was coming over fairly often. Um, right. And then, you know, since then dying uh, probably at least once a year. Right. Um, but, the, but the next body of work will also involve some stuff in Europe and the UK okay. um, and as well as New Zealand too. Yeah. So. yeah. 